0: Thank you. Welcome, everybody, to the number eight episode of the Law of Liberty podcast. I'm Dave with my co-host, Stratty, and we are joined today by Mr. Jeff Deist. He is the president of the Mises Institute, and uh, we're very, very happy to have him join us today. Mr. Deist, uh, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Well, thank you, guys. It feels like I just met both of you just a couple months ago at our summer university, and uh, uh, great to be talking with you.
2: Great to be talking with you. So, uh, we're going to get into the law stuff, but me and, uh, Dave, we're talking beforehand because we're big fans of your content, whether it's the lectures you give at Mises, U or your articles. And, uh, I wanted to ask, would you consider yourself more of a pessimist or optimist? And the reason I want to ask this is because me and uh, Dave, we agree that we think you're an optimist just being around you at Mises U, listening to some of your lectures and and such. However, when I read your articles, uh, such as your last one about the CDC, the landlords being able to demand their payments, uh, that gives me a pessimistic type feeling from you when I read this about the future, where we're going. So what, what are your thoughts on that? What would you consider yourself?
1: Yeah, that's a tough one. And obviously 2020 has made it more difficult. Um, so if you want to look for silver linings in what's going on with our current economy, our current political system, if you want to have... Uh, a sense that maybe there are glimmers of hope or areas of human life where things are getting better. I think you have to look at, at uh, you know, beyond the state. I think you have to look beyond the popular culture, beyond the media, et cetera, for that stuff. And, and first of all, we start with the, with the premise that whatever we have going on in society today compared to our grandparents, great-grandparents, et cetera, you know, the kind of hardships we face are negligible compared to them. So, I mean, first and foremost, you got to put that in perspective. We're not going through the Great Depression, the Civil War, or all kinds of terrible things that have happened in the past. So, um, so that I think we, we haven't, we don't deserve to be pessimists. We we haven't earned the right to be pessimists because the three of us happen to have been born and raised in a time of relative material abundance. So, I think you start with that but beyond that there's a lot going on i think that's favorable and and first and foremost is just the deflationary nature of economies i mean no matter what governments do no matter what central banks do economies like to make better stuff and more stuff and as long as we don't get into a really draconian uh kind of uh you know controlled economy which is possible don't get me wrong but as long as we don't get to that we don't need perfect conditions for business to make us all wealthier we just need okay Decent conditions, and so uh, I was talking to a guy earlier today. was talking about how a, a pair of Levi's five hundred ones used to be fifty dollars in the eighties, and now a pair of Levi's five hundred ones is thirty five dollars in twenty twenty So you know, um, there's a great book that came out earlier this year called The Price of Tomorrow by a guy named Jeff Booth, and it's all about how deflation is the natural order of things, and if we just get governments and central banks a little bit out of the way that this process would be making us all wealthier because two things have come way down in price and that is energy because we found all kinds of uh, alternative energies you know and we've you know developed fracking and shale and ways to extract oil from the earth in cost-effective ways that we didn't have 20 or 30 years ago so energy's gotten cheaper and of course technology especially computing power keeps getting faster and better and cheaper so things we ought to be getting b- better off a sense of optimism and hope so i'd recommend jeff booth's book to anybody who is um looking for some kind of upside to everything that's going on in 2020 so um uh, i guess i'm gonna i'm gonna try to be in the jeff booth optimist camp
0: i'm, I'm i was interested in uh one of the talks you just recently gave about Uh, everything that's been going on with COVID this year and how it's kind of been forcing some decentralization to go on, like with schools and other kind of things like that. So did you hear recently about the uh, the court case in Pennsylvania where they held that the lockdowns were unconstitutional?
1: Yeah, that was great to hear. I think the governor up there has been, uh, you know, uh, basically a lawbreaker. And at this point, some of these governors not only need to be removed from office, I would suggest some of them need to be arrested for what they've done. I mean, acting wildly outside their uh, authority under their various state constitutions and blatantly disregarding due process requirements in both the federal and state constitutions. So, uh, you know, this is a serious problem and it's good to see a, a victory in court. I think I would love to see lawsuits against all kinds of mayors and governors across the country for economic damages. It's, you know, we still don't know what kind of economy we're going to be looking at in 2021. We don't know how quickly some things are going to bounce back. If at all, Uh, we could be staring down the face of a five or 10 year serious depression. So, um, so boy, uh, you know, unlike the crash of 2008, I would like to see some people held accountable for what's for the economic damage that they've wrought, And, um, There has been a decentralizing impulse, I think, that the COVID lockdowns have proven, and that is that for better or worse, whether it was for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, Trump kind of deferred to governors and left it up to them. And at the international level, organizations like the UN and the the WHO sort of left it up to individual countries to do that. And in Europe, we saw the EU sort of start to break up in a decentralized fashion in terms of its approach to COVID. Italy had a very different situation than Sweden, for example, uh, both EU countries. Uh, so in the United States, we've seen states like South Dakota take approach that's very different from New Jersey and New York because of the very different circumstances. So yes, I think that a, a silver lining of the COVID lockdowns is that we've, we've seen some experimentation between states. And I hope that continues and God knows if Trump somehow manages to win this election, uh, we are going to see a response from the left that is going to be unbelievable, and it's going to be a huge opportunity, uh, I think, for people to start going their own way and saying, you know, we're just not going to abide by a few thousand people in Washington D.C. anymore. It's it's healthy in that sense. It's too bad it took COVID to get us here.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It's nice. It's nice to see that decentralizing silver lining. Um, and and also the thing is, you you're talking about, you know, how some of these governors and and other officials. You know, definitely deserve to be prosecuted. I mean, they've themselves have been even honest about the fact that what they were doing wasn't legal. It's like the the the. I think it was the governor of New Jersey when he was on Tucker said the Bill of Rights is above my pay grade. I mean, that's just right there. That's just I mean, at least they're honest that they're violating the Constitution. Yeah. It's easier to nail them on it.
1: Yeah, that was an interesting statement and uh, I think a telling one. These, these people are operating in a different world and it's all about what you can get away with. And that's all about what we let them get away with at the end of the day. So uh, I don't know when Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, is up for reelection. But again, if you look at most state constitutions, I believe 49 out of 50 state constitutions have a procedure for impeachment of the governor and it looks a lot like the federal constitution procedure in the sense that the state legislature uh, uh, conducts a trial of sorts and uh, boy if there was ever a time when impeachment was in order for some of these clowns it's now and i'd love to see it happen because yeah they're going to be replaced by another person i get that but i think as people who care about human freedom we should uh, celebrate and encourage uh, taking some of these some of these people out politically
0: um, I, want, I want to bring up something also you mentioned in your in your answer. You brought up uh, international law and international institutions. And I'm taking a class on public international law right now, and I'm really learning a lot. It's very fascinating stuff. But I, I'm kind of conflicted on exactly how to view that kind of space because at the same time, I understand the benefits of decentralization. And I've listened to Hoppe's arguments about small states being superior and other things like that. Um, but then I also remember, you know, uh, hearing Ron Paul say things like, if countries are talking with each other, then they're not shooting at each other. So that's a, that's a benefit. And so international law is kind of a part of that and kind of necessary to it. Um, but then I also just look at, you know, certain things that these international organizations like the EU and the UN do. And, you know, they make me very skeptical. And, and you mm-hmm. know, that I definitely worry that they might be trying to fight against decentralization towards globalization. So how do you think we should, as libertarians, view international law and the different kind of countervailing you know, aspects to it? Um, the
1: decentralization versus globalism? Well, I think uh, economic globalism is good. I think political globalism is bad. So most of what we understand as international law, certainly the kind of international law they teach in law school is total bullshit. And, and the, there's a very simple reason for that is that if you, you know, law derives its legitimacy from consent. Now I would argue that some sort of private law system or certainly, certainly an evolved common law, as opposed to a positive statutory law enacted by legislature. It has that, uh, that veneer, at least, if not the imprint of uh, legitimacy, but Nonetheless, the 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 farther and farther you get away from local decision making, you know, each new level of government attenuates the individual's ability to to have an influence on the kind of rules he or she is supposed to live under. So you might actually have a little bit of a say if you live in a small town on what happens with some zoning issue or something, if you really go and get a bunch of your neighbors involved in the lobby and go to the city council meetings and all that, I mean, it's conceivable you can have an effect. At the county level, that's that's tougher. At the state level, it's tougher still. At the at D.C., tougher still. But then you start getting into international law, so-called. And, you know, there's just no, there's no valid argument that international law has the consent of the governed or those who are purported to be governed by it. So it, it's obviously bad in that sense. And if you look at our constitution, yes, uh, the Senate does have the ability to validate treaties entered into by the president, but you, you can't by treaty um, change fundamental underlying U.S. law. You can't, for instance, you you can't, uh, um enter into a valid treaty which which states that the uh, legislative power of the United States Congress is hereby um you know modified to allow uh the the UN to make decisions in the areas of x y and z you know there's obviously fundamental things that can, cannot be delegated away by treaties so even when it comes to treaties it's it's not so clear But I think the only international law we need would be a common law system, of commercial law. There's countries all over the world. They want to trade with each other. They want to engage in shipping, which involves international waters and then coming into each other's territories. Uh, So if you look at, um, you know, even back before the British Empire, there was a, a growing body of international commercial law, which didn't require all these legislatures. It didn't require bureaucrats in Brussels or the U.N. or whatever to to enact or to codify. So that's where I would put my hope. And that's why, um, you know, I think it's good when, you know, as I mentioned in Florida, where everywhere you go, all over the world, there's Diet Coke. And that doesn't have to be imposed on anybody that, you know, nobody has to be bombed into agreeing to have Diet Coke in their country, that just people want to have Diet Coke. It's, it's actually invited into countries around the world because it's popular. And that, that's a form of commercial uh, or economic globalism. But having UN observers of your election, you know, that, that's, that's political globalism. So I, I absolutely favor the, the former, but not the latter.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, Stratty, you got a question you'd like to build up here?
2: Well, I had a thought because of what he said about the globalism thing. And it's kind of funny because I remember, um, I was watching something about the protest against the world trade organization in 99 in Seattle. And, uh, it was with some other right winger. I can't think of who it was, but they were, um, they were, they were suggesting that these people, some of the leftists there, uh, they were on our side because they were going against, uh, Globalism. And I, for the life of me, couldn't explain to him uh, or couldn't get it through to him that there's a difference between political globalism like you just explained, and then economic globalism, which uh, we are in favor of. And uh, he just couldn't get it through his head. So thank you for putting that into some succinct words.
1: yeah, the WTO is that kind of mixed bag where there were some some free trade benefits which came from it, and organizations like Cato were touting it heavily. Uh, the, the opponents to WCO that's where sort of Bernie Sanders meets Pat Buchanan mm-hmm. in terms of some of the objections. But some of those objections were valid. I, I mean, from my own time on Capitol Hill, I can tell you that we did sh- Congress, not we, but Congress changed American domestic laws in the tax code to comply with the WTO appellate panel. There used to be uh, something called a foreign sales corporation, which was uh, part of our federal tax law. And some of our trade competitors objected to it. They went before the WTO appellate panel and the panel ruled against the United States. And, and basically this came back to Congress and the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee at the time, a very powerful guy named Bill Thomas said, well, Congress, we got to change it. WTO is ruled. So organizations like Cato were, were just wrong when it came to their, to their insistence that WTO had no impact on U.S. sovereignty. It did. Uh, now, the, the, again, it was a mixed bag. There were some free trade benefits, some reduction of tariffs, uh, some opening of trade around the world. So, uh, But you, know, you don't need trade agreements to have free trade. All you need is an, is an absence of tariffs. And any country can do that unilaterally and say, we're not going to put a tariff on anything coming into our country because we don't want to tax our own people. Two countries together can do that bilaterally. They don't need Uh, these huge organizations and they certainly don't need supranational bodies to adjudicate all this it's it's actually quite simple trade agreements should just be a a, a two or three lines you know uh, the united states and mexico hereby agree to eliminate all tariffs on on uh automobile imports going either way right? I mean, that's all you need. So whenever you start getting huge uh, agreements with thousands of pages and then you start creating these uh, supranational bodies like the WTO appellate panel, watch out because you know there's something wrong.
2: So you brought up Pat Buchanan and uh, I wanted to ask you this then because I read a Pat Buchanan book recently where the right went wrong and uh, I agreed with almost everything he said in there and uh, I think he's a great person with a lot of great ideas but where he goes wrong in my opinion and you said it is on all of his economic beliefs which is he's in favor of protectionism tariffs now uh i got into a debate with someone and they claim that history is on their side uh when you look at the past uh, with tariffs and countries who've impl- implemented tariffs and how uh, strong these nations have become uh i wanted to ask what would be your answer to that how how would you answer that person
1: well, it's a good question, and we ought to be a little more open in our reflexive answer to it. I would suggest to your listeners there's an old show, a Tom Woods show, where it was Tom Woods and Bob Murphy debating protectionism with a guy named Vox Day, who's a name some of you might know as a writer. So it's really interesting. But here's where where I think the Pat Buchanans of the world and the Vox Days of the world ought to be making their arguments. Is they ought to just admit. And the tariffs and protectionism and subsidies are economically less efficient. They ought to just say, you know what, Stratton, you know what, Jeff, you're right. Uh, when we slap a tariff on Chinese imports and those flip-flops that come into your local Walmart cost $7 instead of $5, yes, that's not the most economically efficient way of doing things. And yes, that, that uh, low-income family who's shopping at Walmart and needs some flip-flops for their kid is going to be out the two bucks, and that's not so good. But it's more important that we have a thriving domestic industry, you know, in flip flops or whatever. And and so, even though it's economically less efficient over the U.S. economy as a whole, you know, when you spread that across everybody, it's just a penny here and there. And so. But if we have this thriving domestic industry in a certain town or, you know, a certain group of towns, we're going to have, as a result of that, we're going to have stronger culture there. We're going to have stronger families, intact families, less hopelessness, less joblessness, less opioid addiction. We're going to have, you know, thriving restaurants. We're going to have thriving little league teams and all that. And that's more important to me as a cultural matter than this purely economic argument. I, I think you could say, well, all right, maybe I disagree, but, you could understand it, but instead, they they want to talk about um, the economics of it in, in ways they just don't fully grasp or understand. That there's never an argument for a tax because that's all this stuff is. There's never an argument for a subsidy. You're just propping up something inefficient, and you're getting more government involved. And and even the most you know Pat Buchananites of all people ought to understand that they're not going to win with government. They're not going. They're never going to control. The levers, the federal apparatus. So, um, it's almost a cultural argument, and and those of us who have read Mises, especially, are always going to be free traders. But um, y- you know, the the, the protectionist, it, it's it goes back to the old saying that um, the conservatives need to le- learn economics, libertarians need to learn culture. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and, and that kind of. Ties into something that Dr. Mark Brandley was talking about in one of his talks at the last Mises U, where he was going into more sophisticated arguments for tariffs and protectionism. And one of the ones he said was, Yeah, we accept that it's economically inefficient, but there's some other values to it that, that outweigh it. And, you know, I think that that argument definitely suffers from subjective value. How would you even know what was more valued or, or whatever? But it's definitely, yeah, I think it's a good point to think about that. It's not just economic efficiency that's on the table in that argument. There's other considerations at play. So you need to make more kind of sophisticated arguments against it.
1: Well, as you say, it's wholly subjective. And then, of course, there's a collectivist national element to it in the sense that if you said, look, as a country, as a group of people, we take so much pride in having a really robust auto industry, you know, made in the USA, Detroit. We're so proud of Detroit and its heritage and all those cool cars that we're going to slap huge import tariffs on Hyundais and Kias and Hondas and Toyotas because we really want to have a thriving Detroit and and all the auto uh, parts manufacturers that go along with that. And and collectively as a nation, how could anyone ever prove this, of course? Collectively as a nation, we just take a lot of pride in our auto industry. And so that's something that's very, very subjective. And that matters more to us than being able to buy a Kia for a thousand bucks less, um, there might be plenty of people who agree with that, who in their own you know sense of psychic benefit, not not just those who are you know are benefit directly because they work in the in in Detroit, but even just Americans who are like, yeah, I think it's cool when we have a lot of Fords and Chevys that and, and on the road, and and I take some sort of psychic benefit in that, and. If I have to pay a 1000 more for a Toyota, well, screw me. I shouldn't be buying a Toyota anyway. Okay, but what about that less affluent family? Who are you to impose that $1,000 on them? That's the problem. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a good point. So um, I'd like to shift topics here and talk a little bit about a, a talk that you gave about a year ago on big tech and, and tort law. Um, and I just re-listened to that um, talk last night and you cover a lot of really good ground. You talk a lot about contracts and property. You bring up equitable estoppel and and different kind of uh, aspects to this on how you could maybe make a legal claim against censorship on, on, on social media and big tech. Um, so I would just like to ask you kind of an open-ended question. Since that talk was a year ago, um, has there been anything that's happened over that year that's um, made you think more about this topic? Do you have maybe more... Um, uh solid answers that you might be able to give on talking about it you know what what's your kind of uh, revisiting of that of that talk you gave
1: boy i if anything in the past year things have gotten so ugly uh i, I think maybe i'm going even further down that path um in the sense that i'm starting to question the pure rothbardian walter blocky and stefan Kinsellian kancellin um view of tort and that doesn't bring me any happiness I it's just something I'm struggling with I don't I don't have black and white uh thoughts here but I'm starting to question the the notion that tort is only proper in a liberal libertarian legal system theoretical system in the ca- in a case of physical invasion even if that means air pollution or wind pollution or, or noise pollution or, uh, you know, degradation of one's property, whatever, or some sort of physical contact or physical assault on your body. I, I'm just starting to think that that's just not sufficient for a digital age. I mean, I, I really think that that common law can handle this. I think common law can evolve for the time and place and, and give us answers what, that while imperfect, are are better than top down, you know, statutes, which tend to be, to which tend to overreach. And let's not forget that we have juries here. You know, juries are supposed to play a role in in crafting monetary damages that are rational, uh, given the harm. So when when you read the ethics of liberty, and you read the the concept of um, contract that Rothbard lays out. As a, a transfer of property rights, not title transfer theory of contract, not a you know a promise theory, um, you know there are very real harms involved, and and there's to people when they are digitally deplatformed, and it doesn't always just mean some you know loudmouth on social media who loses his Facebook or Twitter or YouTube uh, a- access. You know it can be someone who. Is kicked off a website domain. Someone like GoDaddy can get rid of your website. We're talking about platforms like Beavac or Wells Fargo can say you can't bank with us. PayPal or GoFundMe can say you can't be paid via our platform gateways. You know that's that's a little farther down the road than just not being able to uh, have offensive opinions on Twitter, right? I mean, we're getting into the point where people are unbanked. In their deplatforming, so this strikes me as although not a physical invasion, a digital invasion. I mean, what if you have a a website uh, which has huge amounts of content that represents thousands and thousands of hours, years and years of work on your part, and then you lose that domain overnight because GoDaddy says you know you put up something offensive about vaccines or about Trump or about Black Lives Matter? Wow, I mean, uh, you know. You mentioned equitable estoppel. Here, here's my argument there is this is a long-standing legal concept. It sort of straddles tort and contract law a little bit. It's not super fresh in my mind, but uh, you know, estoppel is basically, hey, you relied on something. You relied on Facebook or Twitter acting a certain way, and then they pulled the rug out from under you. So, you know, the terms of service for Facebook and Twitter might be very clear. They might say, look, we can pull your account at any time for any reason. All right, okay, but there is consideration. I mean, they're selling your data to a third party. So you're not getting Facebook or Twitter for free. There is consideration in contract law. There is something you're giving them, which is your data. Um, And then we do have this other idea in contract law called waiver. So let's say you're a tenant and your lease says, you know, your rent's due on the first of the month. And if you don't pay by the fifth or if you don't pay on the first, there's a $20 late fee. So the years go by and you start paying your rent on the second or the third or the fifth and your landlord never imposes the fee, never imposes the late fee. And then 10 years into your lease, the landlord, uh, you know, you do this again, the landlord says, well, look, it's the third, I got to charge you a late fee. There's, There's a concept in contract law called waiver, which basically says, even though the contract said The landlord can hit you with this late fee all those years they let you be a few days late so they effectively waived enforcement of that term of the contract okay well maybe arguably facebook and twitter are doing that they let you post all this stuff and then one day they take it away so that's that's one thing when you use it just for social reasons or to just be a loudmouth blowhard and get your own opinions out there but what if you use facebook for your business You know, a lot of small and local businesses just use Facebook. It actually makes more sense than building your own website. So let's say you're a dry cleaner or a restaurant, and every day you put up your specials or you put coupons on Facebook. And you do this for years and years and years. And so a lot of your business traffic is being driven by Facebook. And then one day in year six, you put up something that Facebook deems offensive about vaccines or about Donald Trump or something, and they pull your Facebook page. And all of a sudden, you lose 50% of your customers to your dry cleaner, to your restaurant. Well, Walter Block, channeling Rothbard, I think, would say, well, too bad. You don't have any property right in this ongoing stream of customers. You don't have any property right in your Facebook platform. Facebook owns that. Okay, well, you know, I understand that argument. And that used to be my argument. But it's increasingly becoming unsatisfying for me. And, and I think that my imperfect answer for this uh, is common law. Common law evolves. It doesn't require a legislature. It, you know, these concepts come up. And um, I think maybe common law ought to evolve a bit for a digital age. And I, and as a, a you know, someone who's liberty minded, I don't, I don't think Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and GoDaddy and Bank of America are our, are our friends. Let me just put it to you that way, to put it mildly. So, um, you know, increasingly, I think these bastards ought to be sued.
0: Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating question because it's just the, the one side, which is the practical side, which is Facebook and Twitter. They they don't like us. And if they had their way, we'd be squatched. But also at the same time, you got all this theory that you need to think about and try to figure out what's the actual right way to do it, because you want your legal system to operate on the correct theory. Cause if it doesn't unexpected, bad things can happen. So it's just a really fascinating issue. Um, so I got, I, I just got a few questions, um, to kind of follow up on that. Um, so you think that you could, you think that there's a possible argument you could make that data, it could be consideration legally, because my understanding is, you know, that would kind of like Question: Some of the IP arguments on whether or not information is like a is like an economic good of value, right? So, I know that I know that consideration under the current law is more just about value, and then Rothbard's contract theory is more about on property. So, I guess could you maybe expand on that that kind of aspect of the, of the argument there of data as consideration?
1: Yeah, I'm struggling with that because I'm. I think a hundred percent in agreement with the consellan argument that um, ideas, data, numbers, words, aren't property, musical notes, you know, uh, letters in a book uh, that aren't property because in order to enforce that property right, so-called, you have to Im- impinge on other people's property rights, which is to tell them, no, 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 you can't put this assemblage of letters and words in a book and sell it yourself. So, you know, so, but, does consideration have to be property per se? I mean, clearly it could be consideration could be an action, like you agree to come uh, you know, snowplow my driveway every two weeks. That's that's not property. I, I don't, you know, that's not I'm not giving you property. I'm giving I don't I don't own my ability and my energy to go snowplow your driveway. I'm giving I'm giving you a service. So in a sense, your data could represent uh, consideration on, on that level. Um and, you know, you've got the question of defamation, which under strict Rothbardian law, it doesn't give rise to a tort cause of action. And Walter Block is famous for saying, look, if I come along and steal your spouse, uh, you know, romance them or some you know, whatever, um, you know, and they leave you and run off with me, then that's, I've harmed you in a sense. You feel subjectively worse off and I've harmed you, but that ought not to give rise to, a legal uh, claim in tort because there's no property involved. You don't own your spouse and you don't own your, your own good feelings about having your spouse. You don't own the future happiness you might've had with your spouse. If you don't, if I hadn't come along and stolen him or her. So, you know, you got that. Um, But there's a harm. And I don't think we necessarily need Walter block to define a harm for us. I think we need common law courts to define a harm for us over time. Now, if I was on a jury and someone said, oh my gosh, this obnoxious person came along and stole my spouse. I might say, well, okay, but I'm not really going to award you any damages because your marriage was on the rocks anyway. And you know, so that comes down to money, perhaps, which is always an imperfect remedy. But, you know, the, the idea that tort needs to require a physical invasion is is something that I am increasingly uncomfortable with. And I, I don't have a clear conception of, of what it should look like though.
0: I'm really glad you brought up defamation. I've been studying defamation in my torts class, um, that I've been taking this semester. Um, and, and I definitely agree with that Rothbardian conception of of defamation, not really being legitimate, but, one of the things that is really interesting about the common law of defamation is, is how the First Amendment applies to it, and how the First Amendment has, has changed the common law of defamation. And a lot of, I've been reading a lot of Supreme Court cases recently on that, and one of the things they keep talking about is the policy of the First Amendment. They have these factor balancing tests where you have to look at the totality of the circumstances and to look at the interests of the parties, and and, and that's all under the Framework of the First Amendment, so um, my kind of question is, it's more, it's more of like a kind of a statutory questions. Is I don't, I don't know the history of litigation surrounding um, the the Communications Decency Act, and I know that that statute has been getting a lot of heat lately, and people have been thinking about maybe making changes to it or repealing it outright, um, and other kind of suggestions on how to on how to handle that. So my question is, do you think there might be a First Amendment policy argument that could invalidate or hold unconstitutional the CDA under the First Amendment because um, because under the defamation law, they keep saying, you know, we have these interests in free speech and we need breathing room for free speech and other kind of things like that. And then the CDA offers this this liability protection to these big tech companies as platforms rather than publishers. So do you think that as time has gone by... And now that we're seeing the effects of this statute, there might be a, a First Amendment policy argument there that the way the statute is working is violating the First Amendment and its policy.
1: Well, it might be. I mean, that would be a pretty broad, I think, interpretation of the First Amendment because no one is really losing their right to speak in the in the purest sense. They're not being jailed. Um, but I don't like First Amendment arguments because I don't like constitutional arguments. I think the three of us would say, look, our our speech rights don't come from the First Amendment. Yeah. But uh, Judge Napolitano gave a talk at our Mises University a couple years back about it's surprisingly robust. The First Amendment has been like reasonably well upheld. But we look at the Second Amendment with all the gun laws. We look at the Fourth Amendment, which we think is basically out the window. The night the Tenth Amendment's long dead. Um, you know, as liberty-minded people, we say, oh my God, the Constitution's in the toilet. But the First Amendment has actually been subjected to pretty decent Supreme Court jurisprudence. So that's one of the few bright spots in constitutional law is that the First Amendment really is sort of upheld in the United States. And it really does separate us from Europe and Canada when it comes to hate speech and that sort of thing. Um, But I don't want to see a First Amendment argument. I want to see... an old-fashioned tort defamation argument now here's the thing about the infamous section 230 the Communications Decency Act is that this this bill was passed in 1996 so it was designed to free up the internet there was actually a a reasonably libertarian impulse behind it there was a senator named Ron Wyden from Oregon and a congressman named Chris Cox from Orange County California who later on later went on to head up the SEC and they said well look we need at that time in 1996 you guys were probably just being born or whatever but um you know what we thought of as the internet was like aol and chat rooms and stuff and you used to get these physical discs in the mail and you'd stick them in your in your computer and download them and it was it was dial-up internet and everything was really slow and so people said well we're getting you know there's brand these brand new concepts of search engines companies like yahoo and altavista and then internet service providers like aol everything was really clunky and cumbersome compared to today and so the thinking which was correct at the time was that hey look these companies are are kind of the nuts and bolts infrastructure, the pipeline of the internet, like AOL, big company at one time. And, you know, they're almost like the phone book or the phone company. You know, if people go online and say things that are defamatory or obscene, you know, show obscene photographs of, you know, we can't hold them liable for that because that just doesn't make any sense. When two criminals uh, use... Uh, you know, Verizon Wireless to engage in a criminal conspiracy and discuss their upcoming murder. We don't, you know, criminally prosecute Verizon for, you know, being an accessory to that conspiracy or that later crime. We we understand that they're just a they're just the medium. They're not criminally responsible for what people say over their cellular network. So that was the thinking. And that's all well and good. Um, You know, versus the New York Times really does have a say in what appears in its publication. They exercise editorial control over that. So uh, they ought to be subject to uh, defamation lawsuits for slander and libel when applicable. That was, you know, that was the idea. But over time, nobody dreamed up social media in 1996. Over time, these social media platforms came into existence and then became very powerful. And then a particular search engine like Google became the, you know, 800 pound gorilla in the room. And so these things weren't really contemplated. Now Google could simply disappear like Mises Institute results. If you typed in Rothbard or Mises or Austrian economics, Google could just make it. So the, you know, the Mises Institute didn't appear till page 30 or whatever of the search results and we would be effectively disappeared. So they could do that. They haven't done that. I hope they don't, but you know, you start to understand the power of these companies and, um, you know, Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, they really are exercising a degree of editorial control. They're looking at content that's appearing on their platform and they're deciding if it's okay or not and removing it if not. So that's, that sounds an awful lot like editorial control. And that sounds like they ought to be subject to the same defamation rubric uh, uh, that applies to the New York times. Again, Rothbardian libertarians would say defamation ought not to be a cause of action because you don't own other people's thoughts and, and attitudes and opinions about you. You don't own a social media platform, but I'm un- increasingly uncomfortable with that. If somebody comes along and, uh, you know, uses the social media and calls you a pedophile. And as a result of that, you are, you know, you can't get a job, your neighbors start to shun you, um, you know, and you say, no, 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 I'm not a pedophile. This is, this is I, you know, I'm going to sue you for the for damage of my life. And, you know, in, in common law, I think juries would recognize a real harm there and say, oh, my gosh, it wasn't true. This guy wasn't a pedophile. He lost his job. He lost his friends. His family abandoned him. Man, oh, man, he deserves to be compensated for by the, this tort tortfeasor. And Rothbard and Walter Block would say no, and and I'm not sure I agree with that anymore.
0: So I've got I got two more questions uh, that are kind of drawing off some of the things you said in that talk, and then I'll turn it over to Strati. I hope I'm
1: not too long. I hope no, I'm not no. too long winded in these answers. No, but, uh, you know,
2: not no. at all.
0: Yeah, we, we, we this is what we're here for. We want to get big brained and allow you to, you know, say your piece. So it's great. Um, so I guess the next question I have is a question that we've talked about in our past episodes. And we were just on a we were just on another podcast last night and we talked about this a lot. And so I think it just ties into some of the things you've said in that talk. And so my question is, do you think you can own bitcoin in the Rothbardian property sense? Own data like information bitcoin?
1: Tough, but I'm going to say yes. Yes.
0: Let's go. <laughs> we've been <laughs> we've been <laughs> we've been having this conversation with a lot of people. And it's one of the questions that in our small listener base, it's it's been brought up multiple times already, and so yeah, I mean, it's been like split fifty fifty, yes versus no on on the discussions we've been having on that question. With I'm the gold some bug people. of the show. <laughs> okay, so um, the next one is the last question I'll have on on this on this this tort talk that you gave, um, and you, it was during the part where you were talking a little bit more on, on contracts, and um, and you brought up the the four corners idea you know when you have a contract you look at the terms of the contract and that's what you know we go based off of um but then i'm also interested you know i'm also interested in the idea of well you know the circumstances inform what the terms mean maybe you know ideas of implied consent or implied contract gap fillers and then one of the one of the doctrines we talked about a little bit in in one of our earlier episodes that we did on contracts was the parole evidence rule and, and how, you know, you don't take in, when you have a written memorialized document of your contract and its terms, you don't take in previous oral statements and evidence to to interpret what those terms mean. And so I guess my question for you is, do you, are you kind of on board with that idea that if we have this document, that's what we got to rely on? Or are you more willing to sometimes take into account you know, other statements made, circumstances, other things to try to flesh out what the terms of a contract actually mean. Because I think that would be a really important question of figuring out, you know, contractual terms with these big tech companies.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you agree to a user agreement, you know, you're downloading some software, you're, you're opening a Twitter account, you're opening a Facebook account, that's not really a contract in the same sense that you're talking about with the parallel evidence rule or the the, the four corners doctrine. I mean, we're not, you know people aren't really sitting down and, and discussing and thinking about negotiating terms of a contract and arriving. So I mean that's that's sort of a one-sided thing. And it, it, if, if I recall, there's something called an adhesion contract in contracts, it's been a long time, but you just sort of take it or leave it. And this is the way it is. And the terms are totally one-sided. And the only reason people sign them is because, you know, it's just presented as a fait accompli. Um, and as libertarians, we, we don't like to go into all this unequal bargaining power stuff. I mean, you know, you don't have to do something. You don't have to sign a contract. If you don't want to work for 15 bucks an hour, don't do it. Um, you know, so the left would say, well, but if you don't work for $15 an hour, you'll starve. Uh, so, okay. So I think it's tough. It's tough, but I'm going to have to say that, you know, I think courts ought to go by the four quarters. I think if if there's a contract there, they ought to interpret it that way. But I would I would say that that uh, what you sign up for when you get into social media, for example, is not the same thing. It's a totally different animal and it ought to be treated differently. I guess that's my short answer.
0: All right. Cool. Stratty, you got any questions you want to add to this?
2: Yeah, I wanted to talk to you, um, Jeff, about something you kind of got me interested in. You got me to kind of focus on uh, about a year ago now. And uh, that's, you know, as libertarians ourselves, yes, the individual is important. It's important to value uh, individualism itself. However, there's much more to it. There, community does matter. Family does matter. Um, and I remember hearing you talk about how, you know, just doing things for your parents, just helping them out, do uh, things like that. It, it does so much to help build uh, a person up, especially uh, a man. It helps make you it makes uh, helps make a boy into a man. And so with everything going on in culture or around our society these days and the culture and, you know, all this talk of toxic masculinity, uh, what are your thoughts on that? And also What do you think uh, or what type of man is the is that the what is the type of man that the liberty movement needs in order for us to be effective? Because I think that is something important. and That's something to really be considered uh, when we look towards people to kind of get things done in these circles.
1: Well, it's very, very tough because I think the state wants us lonely and atomized and broke and dependent. There's no doubt about that. And, and families form a baseline. They, they form what I think I said, something like the first line of defense against the state, because you have some people to whom you can turn, um, other than government handouts or charity or whatever, if, if something goes, goes wrong in your life. And, you know, in my younger days, I certainly, uh, read a lot of objectivist content and th- there was always this heavy undercurrent of well you don't choose your family and just because someone's related to you by blood doesn't mean that they recognize your highest value and this and that and you ought to just you know completely treat them at arm's length almost like strangers and let them earn their relationship with you and it's just that kind of thing just it's it's so anti-human I mean sometimes we over things and we feel like everything has to be explained. You know, when things are natural, the market is the most natural thing of all. So when we just leave people alone and see what they do, <laughs> thats called the market, right? And and people form families. There's a lot of historical reasons, you know, economic reasons why families survived. It wasn't just some uh, social construct that worked back in the 1800s and is totally ridiculous today. No, there there actually is some value to that. We shouldn't just discard it so easily and you know wealthy families are are an incredible value to society and that they can stand up against the state you know I, I i read these articles where someone like bill gates says well he's got a couple of kids he's just going to give them five million dollars each and all the other billions are going to go to charity and i think no one would have done that a couple of centuries ago they would have seen that their their the viability their the rationality of building a powerful family i mean Um, that's, you know, when Mark Cuban got sued by the SEC for insider trading, you know, he said, screw you. I'm not guilty. I'm not rolling over. And I'm going to spend the next 10 years and the next $10 million fighting the SEC in court with the best lawyers, because I care so much about my reputation and I'm not going to take it. So as a result of all that, you know, he pushed back, he's a billionaire and uh, the SEC ultimately dropped its case, not just, not, not just that he won in, in the regulatory system or in court, He they actually dropped the case against him altogether. And was that an economically efficient decision? Probably not. He cared more about his reputation than the money. And you know, if you're an average Joe, if the SEC came to someone like me and said, you know, we think you were talking to your brother at this tech company about their initial public offering, and we think you bought a bunch of stock with some insider data, and we're going to destroy your life uh, by charging you with insider trading. So unless like Mark Cuban, you've got ten years and ten million dollars to fight us, I suggest you settle. Well, a guy like me, I'm just going to have to settle with the SEC, even if I did nothing wrong, you know. So that shows you the, the power that that wealth gives us to stand up in, in certain cases against the state. And, and we want that. We want to have dynastic families. We want to have people who, um, you know pro- provide an example for us so it, this i don't understand this anti-family animus of libertarians it's always been dumb and strategically a, a bad idea and so you know what we need to do is just view uh civil society as as something to be encouraged i mean if, if, you know if if you don't want any external governance you need more internal governance it's just you know, it's just human nature. We, it, as the state shrinks in importance, civil society and markets grow in importance. So, it, you know, there's going to be one or the other. And and if we're going to call, if we're going to argue for less state, I think we have to argue for more robust civil society. And that's civil society is all kinds of things. It's not just family, it's religion, it's organizations. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's everything apart from all the things controlled by the state so we should be in favor of those things being solid and robust and if you're not religious that's fine there's lots of other ways to to um to have you know to have organization in society but this idea that we're all going to be these sort of haphazard individuals and we're going to have some sort of Jetsons or Blade Runner future or something it, it, it's just not it's not practical it's not realistic and and the last thing we need to do as liberty-minded people is create more ammunition for our opponents to say we're unrealistic i mean you know we have a mechanism in society that works for creating peace and stability and commerce and wealth we have a mechanism it's called families we don't need to reinvent the wheel okay and look some people are you know there's there's a lot of luck involved here some people are born into a nice happy family some people have some crazy alcoholic parents or something like that you know i get that Um, nothing's perfect, but a lot of life is about playing the percentages and we ought to be doing a better job of, you know, we do a really good job of attacking the state, but we don't do a very good job of propping up its alternative, which is civil society.
0: And that's part of what we're trying to do with the show. We're trying to show that libertarianism and the idea of a stateless society isn't just craziness. It's not, you know, it's not the... There's a strong idea of law and civil order and other things that all go into this entire theory. So, that's one of the really important points that we're trying to drive home um, to our listeners.
2: The second part of that question, you know, what are your thoughts on what is considered uh, toxic masculinity today? And what do you think is the ideal kind of man that the liberty movement needs in order to get things done? Because a lot of our listeners, you know, are the young males who are really passionate about the liberty movement. However, I think a lot of them may have the wrong ideas. They may be on the wrong path. And I think it'd be important for them to hear from a voice like yours uh, in the liberty movement, what they probably should do to put themselves on the right path to get things done.
1: Well, I don't know if I'm qualified. I mean, it's it's tough. I mean, you know, getting married and having kids is tough. And I know a, a ton of childless people who are uh, just fantastic, strong, productive people. So I, you know, I, I do think having kids changes you. Um, but I, you know, I'm not going to argue that people without kids don't have the same time preference or the same stake in the future, because I know so many who, who don't have kids and, and again, are very strong, productive people. But, uh, I can only tell you my own experience was, which is that having kids absolutely changes you. Um, that, that, Marriage is something we ought to support because, again, it's it's a, a, a form of being less dependent on the state. It it brings people together, and it's it's just a building block of society. I mean, we can't have uh, you know so many, especially young men, running wild in the streets, and then say, "Well, gee whiz, why is there an outcry for more government?" <laughs> I mean, it's you know we we don't need government as daddy. Uh, That is for friggin' sure. So start from that premise and and go out from there. And, um, you know, we're not going to go back to the 1800s. We're not going to go back to where people had 12 kids because they were on the asset side of the balance sheet when you were doing farm work or something. And and that's okay. But uh, we need to understand that, uh, you know, the idea that there's not a culture war, that there's not a war on men, not true. There's a war on men. I mean, there is. And, and I hate it when libertarians are so dopey about this stuff because they're so enamored of this fetish of never appearing either left nor right. So I don't want to hear this right-wing culture war from you, Jeff. You know, you're, no, I'm not gonna, we, we, being a libertarian doesn't mean you have to lie about the way things are. And the way things are is there's a lot of contempt and hatred directed at men, especially young men in academia, in media, in grade schools in junior highs in high schools uh and uh there's a lot of nonsense out there uh, uh, you know about how men and women are different they are different okay so let's be complimentary let's again let's be natural markets are the most natural thing in the world and let's just let them work it doesn't mean you have to go play some role look if you're gay be gay if you if you want to be single and not get married Be single and you know no one's forcing this role on you. So I don't want to hear that pushback. What you know, what's being forced is an aggressive sort of anti male, uh, anti religious secularism. That that's what's being pushed, and and I think we just have to be realistic about that. And uh, we we again people who are so concerned about never appearing left to right and insisting that libertarians aren't left to right. Well, of course, libertarianism isn't left or right, but most people do have a tendency to come down one way or the other on the property versus egalitarianism question. Um, so, you know, we don't, I, I just don't like this, uh, browbeating where if we say something in the context of family or religion or something that somehow we're engaged in a right cultural war. Yeah, we are (laughs) damn right. Somebody better be.
0: Yeah. And I think it's really not necessarily fascinating, but it's just it's really revealing when these yeah, these these woke people and, and these people who are who are waging the war against men and then a man says to them, well, in my experience, you know, I was shut down and I wasn't listened to, and they're always talking about lived experience and all this stuff, but then when it comes to you, white male, you don't have any, you're just throwing, it's just, it's just ridiculous how, how contradictory the whole idea is, and I think it just it just rots away at the culture, like you've been saying, and it leads to these, and, and it gets into politics, you know, it ekes it, it, it its way into politics, and that just puts a gun behind it all, and then makes it
2: even worse can I get one more question about the culture? War? Uh, cause I, this is something I want to ask you too, because you, uh, you mentioned, you know, libertarianism is neither left or right, but people, you know, naturally tend to go towards one side. So in, uh, regards to the culture war, are there any libertarians that do go towards the left side that you think are getting it right in terms of, in regards to the culture war or are, uh, on our side in this fight?
1: Well, I mean, anybody who doesn't want to weaponize the state against their cultural opponents is a okay with me. I mean, the, the the bottom line here is that if the Pat Buchanan's of the world, or even the the National Reviews of the world, think that they are ever going to you know control the federal apparatus and direct it towards their purposes, they're crazy. I mean, the state is is too far gone. It, it's 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 not capturable. The federal leviathan is just it's it's a an entity unto itself it's a multi-headed hydra so you know again conservatives ought to be smarter about the nature of government and about economics than they are and libertarians ought to be smarter about culture but um you know tapa has this great term viagra for, for the state and I think when you nauseatingly repeat all the common sort of woke mantras, you know, when you say, Oh yeah, you know, America really is a deeply troubled country and it's deeply racist and homophobic and misogynist and and this and that. I mean, most people's can take away from that is going to be, Oh my gosh, well, will government ought to fix that. Right. Not, we ought to have less government. So I, you know, I think, um, I, I personally, I'm not interested in accepting, the terms of the debate, as dictated by my opponents, I'm not interested in accepting their narrative. I'm not I- I- interested in debating on their terms, right? I mean, that's that's a losing proposition. So, it starts, I think, with with uh, holding the line and recapturing language for starters. You know, don't don't allow people to use these ridiculous sleights of hand um, designed to shade opinion language is a very important line in the sand I think where we have to to stand firm but um, you know I you know we say I'm not interested in a cultural world I'm I don't know that I'm interested in a culture war. I'm not really motivated by cultural I, I'm not I'm not what anyone would call a religious conservative um, but I recognize what the left is you know and this is where libertarians really fall short is they they just simply don't have the honesty to to view and speak about the left as it is and you know you can't get anywhere starting with uh blinders you gotta you gotta look at things realistically and clear-eyed from the get-go and that's that's uh what i think we all have to do it's incumbent on us
0: yeah i completely agree i think people who aren't recognizing the existential threat that the left poses to liberty are just, yeah, they're just not paying yeah. attention or they don't want to pay attention. Um, so, so what do you think about when Trump banned the woke culture or whatever from the government agencies? Do you think that's a step in the right direction in trying to break break the woke culture from the government apparatus, or is it too little too late, or do you think it's all just for show, it's all fluff?
1: It's all fluff. I mean, it's very trumpian in the sense that it's the kind of thing he does. And when you've got all these problems in the country, people are looking for scapegoats. Critical race theory really is, of course, noxious and evil. There's no question about that. So um I, you know, but the federalization of education has been a real disaster, and we don't want we, you know we really ought to be, arguing for local control at the school district level, not even at the state level necessarily, at the school district level over curriculum. And that's something that we have promoted and pushed for a long time. So if he wants to just deny federal funding, for teaching critical race theory in schools. I don't know how that works. Technically, it's awfully hard. You know, money's fungible. So if the federal government's giving uh, school you know, states money and the states are turning around giving that to school districts, it's awfully hard to say, well, here's all your money, but don't spend it on this and do spend it on that. I mean, you know, it's, it just makes a mess of things because whenever you've got federal money, you've got federal strings attached and it, that's a very murky system nothing good will come of it in the long run it'd be much better if we simply sent fewer taxes to washington and allowed uh, education to be controlled at the local level and and look you, you know there's probably some school districts that in that kind of system would be super woke and they teach critical race theory all day long and you'd have to decide whether you want to live there and send your kid to school there or move to to oklahoma or something you know that's okay by me i can live with that um, what i can't live with is creating a federal educational state that you know is going to lurch back and forth between presidents and and that can be weaponized so we ought we ought to resist uh federal control over education that that's for sure but you know unlike libertarians trump actually fights he um you know when he doesn't like something he's he uh he's not a process guy let's put it to you that way he's more a results guy and and even when the result in this case i think would be bad
2: yeah so me and dave were talking about this and we wanted to ask you um how did you find out uh, about you know libertarianism really how'd you find out about the mises institute and how'd you get involved there and how did you end up being president
1: uh yeah long story not not planned or anything like that Um when i was young guy my older brother used to get reason magazine um when i was in high school so he was um And Reason Magazine was very different back then because a lot of stuff, which today is would be blasé to us was edgy back then, you know, like legalizing pot. That was an edgy topic in the late 1980s, early 1990s, getting rid of taxpayer funded stadiums. I mean, this was the kind of stuff that was actually a little bit out there. And, uh, my dad had a copy of the road to serfdom in the house. So that was laying around and I read that. And uh, the, we also had some Ayn Rand books. So I read Atlas Shrugged a teenager, that sort of thing. My mom wasn't real crazy about that because of Rand's atheism, but uh, you know, so and then in, um, in 88, I was just starting college, I guess. And I went to see Rod Paul when he ran for president as a libertarian. And he came to a hotel in Santa Ana, California, Ramada Inn. (laughs) it's believe me, it was not a fancy setting. Um, And so I've known him ever since then, and uh, just just kind of evolved. But, uh, you know, later on, through stints as a lawyer, I I ended up working for Ron for a while, and then he introduced me to Lou Rockwell.
2: And ultimately, I I came to work here. So just one of those things. So Dave's a big music guy. I'm a fan of music. I know me and you had a good conversation about uh punk rock at Mises U this year uh where you said uh you kind of fell out of love with that music cuz cuz it sounds worse as you get older. And I went <laughs> I came back home and I listened to the you know those punk rock bands and you're exactly right. Like uh I've I've come to find that I like Danzig's later stuff and Rollins' later stuff compared to their stuff when they were with misfits and black flag so i wanted to ask though what, what kind of music do you like nowadays like uh any new artist you're really into no no look no? i'm
1: well, i'm in my 50s so i you know that, this stuff's a little different for me than you guys i mean this it was it was newer back then and a lot of times the musicianship was not the point if you know what i mean so uh the, yeah. the music doesn't hold up as well so say what you will about baby boomers you know led zeppelin still Led Zeppelin. Um, <laughs> that's still sort oh, of complex yeah. music with a lot of a lot of character and musicianship to it And you can't necessarily say that about all the stuff from the 80s but um I'm not, i don't really listen to much you know um i'm i'm just trying to cram my head with too many books and podcasts and other things these <laughs> days but uh um i do try to get you know in the car i try to get my daughter to listen so but i mean anything i'm listening to i'm frozen in time so it's old stuff you know uh I don't know, motorhead or something like that.
2: Fair. I like that. Dave, you wanna ace of spades. <laughs> Dave, you wanna hit him with the wrap-up question, the last one?
0: Yeah, yeah. So this is a question. Um, so we had Stefan Kinsella on last week. Uh-oh. Um and so we now asked I'm, him this question. Now I'm
1: just talking about him a week later. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's not gonna agree with this uh this tort concept, I don't think.
0: Well, that's okay. Yeah. That's that's why we're having you both on. We yeah. got we want to get every perspective. Yeah. Um. So uh, so we had him on last week, and we having you on this week because we know you used to be a lawyer, so you have a perspective on on legal things. And I also asked uh, Joe Becker to come on, and hopefully we'll schedule with him to talk about some legal things. So the final question we want to ask you, libertarian legal folks, are: um, What do you think the state of libertarianism is in the legal profession? What legal roles do you think young libertarians should get into? and what other advice would you have for young libertarians who might be considering going to law school
1: well um lawyers in general are terrible you know not just left wing but very lightweight and superficial in their thinking and and the the way they arrived at that position and generally having arrived at it in a very self-serving way like it's okay for them to make lots of money um but those really greedy corporate guys, you know, that's bad. Uh, So the legal profession is, is an absolute terrible cesspool politically. And, you know, there are certainly paths for, for litigation. There's a lot of great public interest law firms in this country doing good things when it comes to property rights and land use and uh, employment and that sort of thing. But you got to understand the judges you're up against. I mean, 30 years ago they might at least have been sort of erudite and they were biased but they were legitimately smart people whereas now you know you're getting into a whole new generation of uh, judges and lawyers who who really don't uh, have a very solid grounding so you know you're going to find that that if you're litigating uh on behalf of some sort of libertarian cause, that you're going to run up against a lot of opposition in court, you know, in motion practice against other lawyers. You know, you're going to be going up, you're going to be suing state or local or federal governments, and they don't have billable hours. They have sort of unlimited resources in their in house lawyers, you know, that, to fight you and to drag things out, whereas your client may not have unlimited resources. So that's it's, it's very tough. Joe Becker can tell you a lot about public interest law. He's a litigator. I was never a litigator. Um, you know, but there's a lot of, a lot of areas where, uh, you know, people can learn things in law school that probably help them. Certainly in in-house counsel, there's, there's uh if you look at any lawyer job, the question you have to ask yourself is would it be better if I held that job or if some, you know, just sort of run in the mill dumb lefty held it. So I, I think that's, ex- that's know.
0: literally what I've thought about the <laughs> issue. When I was talking with people at Mises University, And some of them were saying, oh, I'm considering law school. And I think I I was the only person at this last Mises U who was an actual law student. I know one of the guys was going in. But, you know, I was fielding those kind of questions for all those people a little bit younger than me. And I... would What I basically said was when I meet someone who's a friend who's considering law school, if they're not a libertarian, I say, "Eh, maybe do something (laughs) else. You know, you got some other you got some other skills, man. You know, but if they're a libertarian and say I'm considering law school, I'm like, yes, do it. Come on. We need more libertarians in the law. And it's like it's better for a libertarian to hold that position than somebody else. So I, I definitely agree with that. 100%.
1: Yeah, and you know you can look to the Federalist Society to meet some people. Now, the Federalist Society is certainly not perfect. The Federalist Society has a, uh, a sort of a neoconservative wing to it. It has a never-Trump wing to it, and then it, it has, I guess, a pro-Trump wing to it, and it also has a faintly libertarian wing to it. So, um, you know, it's it's a start. If you know, you can generally join the Federalist Society while you're still in law school, even. But if um, Um, The federal Society near me in Montgomery, Alabama actually is run by Alan Mendenhall, who is used to be one of the deans of Faulkner Law School. He's now at Troy, and he's actually, you know, a great writer, a huge fan of the Mises Institute and a a great guy. So he does get the kind of interesting and engaging speakers you might want. But yeah, it's it's a bit of a desolate wasteland out there. And um, if you're academic minded and you want to go into being a law professor, that gets even worse. I mean, law school faculty make undergraduate, you know, gender studies look like Genghis Khan. Okay. Um, So just forewarned.
0: All right. Stratty, you got anything else you'd like to say before we wrap it up?
2: Just thank you very much for coming on the show and thank you for everything the Mises Institute does.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for everything. It's been really, it's been really great having you. Anything you want to plug
2: real quick?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, just stay tuned, you know, um, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mises at Mises M I S E S, follow me on Twitter at Jeff Deist. And uh, you know, just keep abreast. We've been having live events this year. Um, most organizations have been online only, but we managed to hold uh, our summer at Mises University, a bunch of young kids. Of course, nobody got sick. It's fine. You know, yep. you know, people under 30 are at very, 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 very little risk of COVID. In fact, less than standard influenza. Um, and uh, we've in in you know started our new graduate degree in in economics which just went live this September. So we're, um, we're plugging away.
2: Sweet.
0: All right. Thank you so much for coming on and listeners. Thank you for listening. This has been the law of liberty podcast, and we'll see y'all next time.